Hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris Taylor, and I'm going to be your host today. Let me tell you what, we are so happy that you're listening in today. In fact, if this is your first time listening, or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We've spent the last three months talking about stories of Jesus's power, his authoritative teaching, and the claims that he made about himself. This series has been putting Jesus on trial with the question, who is Jesus? Some kind of magician, maybe a great teacher, a liar, or the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to save us. Well, today we're entering into a new sermon series, the end of this making a Messiah. The final series that we're getting into is the verdict. All of the evidence is before you. Now you have to make a decision on who Jesus truly is. Let's get right into this new series. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Let's pray. Father, we pause right now just to remember that we're in your presence. And we just pray, Lord, through the service in some fashion, whether it's through the words of your scripture, through the songs that we sing, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate, that we'll sense your presence and we'll feel your nudge, that you'll move us and that we will be receptive. We love you dearly. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now, sometimes... Sometimes you don't have to make a choice. You don't have to choose. Other times you're going to have to make a choice whether you want to or not. It's forced on you. So, how about some of these? What are your verdicts on these? If you were on the jury and if you had to make a call, based on what you know right now, what's your verdict? Did he collude with Russia? Steal the election or not? And then did he obstruct the investigations into the collusions or not. Based on what you know, really know, not on what your feelings are about the guy, based on what you know, what's your verdict? And in the end, will it matter what you think, what you choose? Or this one, what's your verdict? Was he really attacked? Was it a hate crime? Or was it just a setup? Based on what you know, Should the charges have been dismissed and his record expunged? And in the end, will it matter what you choose? Or how about this one? What's your verdict? Do you think we have 12 years to turn things around before the damage to our ecosystem will be so devastating that climate change will wreak catastrophic damage to the world as we know it? Extreme heat, drought, floods, poverty, stuff like that. So that no matter what the cost, no matter how extreme it sounds, do you think some kind of a new deal would be absolutely worth it? And in the end, will it matter what you choose? Now we make judgments on that kind of stuff all the time. Usually we don't do anything about it. But we love to see ourselves as part of the jury. We like to render verdicts. We like to express our opinions on those things. Sometimes we do our homework before rendering our opinions. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we try to do something about it if we think something is really right or really wrong. Sometimes we don't. We just like telling people what we think, right? Sometimes we just have no opinion at all. Sometimes we just don't care. And usually in the end, it doesn't matter that much. But once in a while, you have to choose. And once in a while, the choice you make is going to matter, not just for you, but for the people around you, and not just for a while, 
but for a long, long time. Now, Jesus claimed to be God's Messiah, right? He claims to be the Son of God. He claims that he came to save you because he thinks you need saving in some fashion. He claims that he's your Lord. In fact, he claims to be the Lord of absolutely everything. And he claims that if you acknowledge him as your Lord, he's going to make your life way, way better. And he's going to claim that if you stick with him all the way to the end, to your death, that your death won't win. In fact, he claims that he can give you a gift of eternal life. And he claims that you have to choose. You have to make a call. And we've been laying out some of the evidence. We've been laying out some of the evidence of his godlike power, the things that he did that are just incredible, the godlike words that he spoke, the godlike claims that he made. Now, now it's time to make a call. Because if Jesus was right, if just Jesus really did that stuff, if he really said that stuff, you have to choose. You're not going to be able to evade that one. And if you choose to follow Jesus, to be a Jesus follower, do you know what a difference that's supposed to make in your life, how you're supposed to live? You see, I think a lot of Christians are Jesus fans, but they're not Jesus followers. They admire Jesus, but they don't actually follow him. So what does following Jesus really look like? Because in the end, that's our verdict on him. Here we go, our verdict. Now, you guys know that our Bible is divided into two parts, right? You've got the Old Testament, 39 books, and the New Testament, 27 books. It's the old and the new. And I know that the new doesn't seem so new because it's 2,000 years old, but it still is new in the sense that it replaces the old. Now, when we say Old Testament and New, Co new Testament, we're really saying Old Covenant, Old Contract, and new covenant, new contract. The old covenant was the way we used to do life with God, for God, God's way. The new testament is how we do life with God, for God, God's way now. The old testament lays out how the people of God used to do it. The new testament lays out how we do it now. It's kind of like a contract or a will. If you sign a new contract, it replaces the terms of the old contract, right? Jesus came to establish a new covenant, a new testament, a new contract between God and man. He didn't come just to add another chapter to the old. He came to do something brand new, new way of life with God, for God, God's way. He came here to give us a brand new way to find peace with God, a brand new way to live as a Jesus follower, a new covenant with a new set of rules. And what we agree to when we sign up on this new covenant is a whole lot simpler and a whole lot tougher than living under the old covenant. Now, Jesus had been dropping these breadcrumbs all along, right? Teasers. He keeps telling us that he's going to do something brand new. He'd say things like this. Remember what Moses told you to do? Remember what the Old Testament scriptures tell you to do? Well, I'm going to give you something new. You remember those old commandments? I'm going to give you a different way of doing life with God. What Jesus said was audacious. If you want to go back and review it, go to Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. 
Or he'd say things like this. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. The temple of God. The locus of God's presence on earth. Something greater than all of that is standing right here in front of you. Do you really mean it? And if you really did mean it, wouldn't that kind of be the perfect illustration of extreme megalomania? Who does Jesus think he is? The temple, to them, was the center of their life with God. It's how you did life with God, for God, God's way. He's claimed to be greater than the temple, which means that he's really kind of saying you don't need the temple anymore. No man can say something like that without being the most arrogant man ever or the most twisted man ever. Jesus is dropping a breadcrumb. He says, I am bigger than the temple, and I am building something brand new. And then Jesus kept talking about a kingdom, this kingdom that he'd come to build, and he kept claiming to be the king, even though he didn't have around him any of the accoutrements of a king. It was just weird. What does a kingdom without a country look like? What is a kingdom without walls? How does that work? Kingdom without an army, a kingdom without rank. Even, at least the way everybody else calculates rank, Jesus was setting up this kind of an upside-down kingdom. Those on top don't get served. Those on top do the serving. The greatest in his kingdom go to the back of the line in his new kind of kingdom. The kind of people that the kingdom of this world devalues and marginalizes, they matter in this new kingdom. In his world, women, children, they didn't matter. Gentiles, they didn't matter. In his kingdom, they're welcome. They're infinitely valuable. Even the worst of the worst. Guys like tax collectors and sinners. To us, telemarketers, debt collectors, used car salesmen, dentists, lawyers, even journalists and politicians. Infinitely valuable to a different kind of king. Something entirely new. And the laws of this kingdom are so different brand new. Jesus said things like this. It's not about what a man looks like on the outside. We clean up the outside so we look good on the outside. Jesus says God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the heart. He's not fooled by the outside. He looks at the heart. In fact, Jesus says sometimes the holiest people around have the dirtiest hands. And sometimes clean hands mask really dirty hearts. He just kept dropping these clues, a whole trail of breadcrumbs. And then he goes to Jerusalem to pick a fight. A fight that he intended to lose, it looked like, for a couple of days. He went to Jerusalem to launch something brand new. It's kind of like he went to Jerusalem saying, crown me or kill me, but you're not going to ignore me anymore. I'm going to have your verdict. So it's Sunday or a Monday. Somewhere around the 1st of April, just a few days before their huge feast of the Passover, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem like he's some kind of a messianic king. Creates quite the stir. Goes into the temple, starts flipping over the tables, picking a fight with the biggest bullies in town. Crown me or kill me. You will not ignore me. I'm going to have your verdict. Big wigs chose to kill him. They start scheming. They start looking for an opening. They start looking for an excuse to kill him. But everywhere that Jesus goes, the people are surrounding him. They're hanging on every word and they're cheering him on. So they've got to discredit him. And then they need to get him alone. And then they've got to have some charges that are going to stick in a Roman court so the Romans will execute him. 
So they start sending guys out into the crowds to try to trip Jesus up, to get him to say something they can use against him. They try to get him to do something that will turn the crowds against him. Something that would give them an excuse to arrest him and try him and kill him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about these traps they're trying to set. We call them controversy stories in the last week of Jesus. Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. He's out in the temple. Same temple he created the stir in. And he's teaching and they're trying to trip him up. But they find it difficult to argue with God. It's always hard to argue with God actually. Actually it's really not hard to argue with him. It's just hard to argue with God and win. Right? And then something breaks their way. One of Jesus' guys turns traitor. A guy named Judas. Maybe he was disillusioned. Maybe he expected Jesus to be the kind of king that would set up a kingdom with walls and rank and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus just didn't do it. Or maybe Jesus, Judas just wanted the cash. Maybe he was just a jerk. I don't know. But he offered to be a snitch. He offered to let them know when and where Jesus was going to be alone so they could arrest him. What's weird about it is that Jesus wasn't trying to evade arrest. In fact, that's why he had come to Jerusalem. He just wanted to pick the time. He, he, had, to, he had to be arrested and to die. It was part of his brand new, this covenant, his dying and his rising. But he had to wrap up a couple of loose ends first. So the reveal was on Thursday night. On Friday, they'd kill him. On Sunday, he would walk out of his tomb. And Jesus knew it all. In fact, it was all part of his plan. His dying, his kicking death in the tail, it was the foundation for this new covenant between God and man. So Thursday night is the reveal. We call it the Last Supper. It's when Jesus got the disciples together for their last meal before his arrest. And they thought it was going to be kind of like every other Passover meal. In fact, that's why everybody was in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover when God used Moses to rescue the Israelites from Egypt. Remember that? Took them out into the desert, made a new covenant with them, which is now what we call the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Jesus had come to change all that. And during the course of that meal, he took the bread... And he says, this bread isn't about God's rescue of Israel anymore. This bread is now my body. It's my body. Which is here not just to rescue Israel, but every single man, every single woman, everywhere, anytime. And the cup that they used in the Passover meal, he says, not anymore. From now on, it's my blood that I'm going to shed to purchase a new covenant with God through which your sins can be forgiven and you can find peace with God. It's grace. But Jesus won't force us into this covenant with God. He makes us choose. You choose the most important choice you're ever going to make. And when you accept his grace, you also agree to walk a different kind of path. A different way to do life with God, for God, God's way. If you say yes to Jesus, this is what you agree to. Full disclosure. You ready? Now, Jesus had been dropping breadcrumbs about this too along the way. In fact, just a couple of days earlier during one of those controversy stories, Jewish leaders are trying to trap him, to set him up. One of the Pharisees tries to trap Jesus with this question. He says, teacher... 
Which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? What's number one? Old covenant, Old Testament, 10 big commandments, right? You know those 10 commandments. If you count all of the commandments up, all of the laws in the Old Testament, they counted 613 of them. He said, which is the oldest? Which is the biggest? Which is number one? And this lawyer's ready. He's ready to try to trip Jesus up. He knows, thinks he knows what Jesus is going to say, and he's going to go after him. He's going to spring a trap. Jesus says this, number one, right? You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. That's number one, which is the Sunday school answer. That's kind of what they expected back then. It came right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the most important verses in the whole old covenant to the Jews. It's what any good Jew would say. Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to another verse. This one's out of the verse of Le the book of Leviticus. And no one had ever connected this to the Shema before. Jesus said there's a second one equally important. Equally important to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Equally important. In fact, Jesus says if you're going to love God, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, if you're not loving your neighbors yourself, you can't love God. That's a huge breadcrumb. In fact, that's almost dropping the whole loaf right there. Jesus is connecting the vertical with the horizontal. He's connecting our love for God with our love for God's people. It is not an either or. This second piece is not optional for Jesus' followers. They are inextricably intertwined. They're like peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and chocolate, peanut butter and bacon even. They're made for each other. That's brand new. You see, in their world and ours, the two are not inextricably intertwined. A person can love God and hate people. Love God and despise people, marginalize people, abuse them. And here he's like, I'm okay with God. I go to church, confess my sins, I've been baptized, take the Lord's Supper, pay my tithes. I'm okay with God. But look at how you're treating your wife, your husband. Listen to how you talk to your son or your daughter or your dad or your neighbor. What about the people you walk on at work? Or what about the people you post about on Facebook? The people you treat like they don't matter. I know, but God and me are good. Really? Jesus says. Guys, that was the religion of the first century. In fact, it pretty much defines the religion of any century. It even pretty much defines the religion of so many people who call themselves Christians. Jesus says that changes now. Because I've come to establish a new covenant, a new testament, a new way of doing life with God, for God, God's way. I haven't come to add to the old rules. I've come to replace them. And in my kingdom, obedience to the first commandment will be measured by your obedience to the second. In fact, if you think about it, those two are pretty much all you need. They're pretty much all you need. Love God with all that you have. Love your neighbors yourself. Of course, one of those guys is pretty sharp, and he said, well, who's my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? 
try to catch Jesus with that one. If I get to choose my neighbor, I can probably make it work, right? And Jesus pretty much destroys that loophole with a story that we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? Your neighbor is not another Jew. Your neighbor is not someone who's like you. Your neighbor is not someone you like. Your neighbor is anybody, anybody who has a need that you can help. Anybody who has a need that you can help. In other words, listen guys, your love for God, my love for God will be measured by my actions towards people who are nothing like me. Towards people that I may not like. Towards people who probably don't like us. Which can work. Once you figure out that loving somebody doesn't mean you have to like them really. But these are breadcrumbs. They're pointing you to something brand new. So it's Thursday. This is the reveal. This is the day. Jesus spells out the new covenant, the new contract with God, the new testament that God's making through us through his own death in our place and through his resurrection. And then Jesus clarifies what we agree to when we sign on. Full disclosure. The night's full of weird. It's flat out awkward. First of all, Jesus washes their feet. That's weird. And he's going to say that if you're going to be his disciple, you have to learn to wash feet too. That's kind of disgusting. And Jesus tells them there's a traitor in their midst, and Judas leaves inextricably. Then Jesus hijacks their most sacred meal. I mean, the Passover meal used to be about Moses and the Exodus, God's rescue of Israel. Jesus says, not anymore. From now on, that bread is my body broken for you. That cup is my blood shed for you. It's a New Testament, a new covenant, a new contract between God and every single man. This one's not just for the Jews. This is for every person, everywhere, for all time, including us. And here's the deal. When you accept God's grace, this is what you agree to. You ready? These are kind of the rules for those of us who sign on to this new covenant with God. See, every covenant kind of lays out the expectations for those who sign on, right? Well, Jesus says this one's going to be a whole lot simpler than the old, but a whole lot tougher. There's not going to be 613 rules this time. There's not even going to be 10 core commandments. There's really just two, which if you think about it, are really just one. And when Jesus tells the disciples that, the disciples are like, can you do that? Can Jesus really just tear up the old and replace it with the new? Can he really change the rules, God's rules? Can anybody do that except God? Jesus kind of smiles and says, I'm giving you a new commandment, a new commandment, just one, not 10, not 613, just one that pretty much encompasses the big two. Love each other. I want you to love each other. And if he'd stopped there, it wouldn't be so hard. But he goes on. You're going to love each other as I have loved you, just as I have loved you. Huh? In fact, he says, your love for one another, not your love for God, not your love for Jesus, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. 
That's what proves we're his disciples? That's not what most people think. Some people think it's our doctrine, what we believe. If you believe the right stuff about God, the right stuff about Jesus, that will prove to the world that you're his disciples, right? Some of us think that sometimes. Maybe it's our religion. We do church, we pray, we read the Bible, we give, we serve. And all that stuff proves to the world that we're his disciples, right? Because we do all the rituals of religion. Or maybe it's our morality. We don't cuss, we don't chew, we don't run with girls who do, right? Surely that's what proves to the world that we are his disciples. And Jesus says, no. Your love for one another And I'm not talking about your kind of love. I'm talking about my kind of love. That's what's going to prove to this world that you're my disciples, that you are Jesus followers. Holy cow. Does that take your breath away? Matthew. Do you remember when we met? Yeah, Jesus. Remember what you were doing? Yeah, I was a tax collector. Hated by just about everybody. I actually kind of hated myself. Do you remember what I said to you, Matthew? Yeah, you invited me to follow you. Peter, you remember what you were thinking when I invited Matthew to follow me? You weren't happy, were you? None of you guys were. Matthew, do you remember where we went? Yeah. You went to my house and my friends came over and you kind of loved on them. Well, Matthew, for the rest of your life, the kind of grace that I showed you that day, that is to be your gift to every single person you ever meet. That what it means to love each other as I have loved you. Nathaniel, you remember when we met? Do you remember what you said about my hometown, Nazareth? Do you remember how you dissed my parents and my friends and my school? Remember how you said nothing good can come out of Nazareth? Yeah, I remember. Remember how I responded to you? Yeah, you invited me to be one of your closest followers. I want you to offer that same kind of grace and acceptance to everyone you meet, however they treat you. Peter, remember that time when all you guys were thinking about walking away? You were thinking about quitting on me? Remember when I asked you to, straight out, do you want to unfollow me? And you were smart enough to be honest because you knew that I'd see right through your answer. Remember, all, all of you guys, all of you guys were thinking about unfollowing me. But I never chose to give up on you, did I? That's how I want you to treat each other for the rest of your life. Guys, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because I'm going to take this love stuff to a brand new level. And when I finish, I want you to remember that to follow means, me means that you're going to love each other the same kind of way, with the same kind of love that I've shown you, with the same kind of love that I'm going to show you tomorrow. You'll understand. By this one thing, by this one thing, they're going to know 
that you're not just Jesus fans, not just Jesus admirers, that you're Jesus followers. It's not just if you love Jesus, because only God knows that. It's not just if you say you love God, because only God knows that. By this one thing, they will know that we are Jesus followers, not fans, but followers, if we love one another as he has loved us. And guys, if we ever get that, everything else will fall into line. Those are the rules of this brand new covenant. Far less complicated than the 613 rules of the old covenant and far more demanding. And the early Christians got it. In fact, the Apostle Paul, greatest teacher of the early church, he put it like this. He says, God's whole law can be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Every imperative of the New Testament is simply an application of this command. The old covenant, the only way of doing life with God, for God, God's way, is about following a whole bunch of rules. New covenant, the new way of doing life with God, for God, God's way, is about accepting his sacrifice for us and then trying to live out one rule. One rule. And when we get it right, everything falls into place. When we don't, (laughs) we ask for his grace, which is amazing. And then we get up and start all over again. Guys, this is so liberating, so distinctive, so upside down, and it's so healing when we actually live it out. It makes life better, and it makes us way better at life. In a culture that prizes self, loving each other as Christ has loved us, that stands out. In a culture that prizes revenge and getting even, Loving each other as Christ has loved us, that stands out. In a culture that uses and abuses and despises whole classes of people, they know we are Christians by our love for one another when we love each other the same way that he has loved us. And when we get it right, people will want to work for us even though they don't want to believe like us because they crave being loved the way Jesus loves us. People will want us to work for them even though they don't want to believe like us because they really ache for what we have tasted. People will be happy that their kid is dating a Jesus follower. You know why? Because even though we're kind of weird, we treat people right because we love our Jesus and that's captivating. When we get it right, people will want a church like Capital City in their town. And people are going to be drawn to a church like this because even though we really are kind of weird, there's something inside every single person that can only be healed by what we have tasted. That's what it means to say yes to Jesus. We accept his grace and we commit to loving each other as he has loved us. And when we fail, which we will, We ask his forgiveness, we taste his grace, and we start all over again. And we begin to taste life. They showed up that Thursday thinking that they're going to celebrate Passover. They left there that night with their minds blown. Everything was changed. There's a new covenant with God. It applies to every single man, every single woman, every single child, everywhere for all time. And there's a new rule to live by, which basically encompasses everything else. 
Now, guys, we go to these tables with a little different perspective than they had that night. You know why? Because we know what happens on Friday when they nail him to a cross. And we know what happens on Sunday morning. We know what God's verdict is on Jesus. So we're in. And when you come to the table this morning, this is about accepting his grace all over again. And more than that, it's about committing yourself to loving each other as Christ has loved us all over again.